Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Well, welcome, everybody. This is Dr. George James. and Welcome to LeapCast, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. I'm excited for our guest today, Dr. Stephen Treat, somebody I've known for many years, uh, probably over 21 years. Uh, he is someone that if you've heard me at any point talk about one of my mentors, he's definitely uh, the person that I talk about the most in that category. So with that, uh, Dr. Treat, Steve, thanks for joining me today on LeapCast. What a privilege. So one of the things that we uh, like to start off with is uh, being able to talk about your leap story, which is really about your early days, your beginning of your career and process. And so I guess I want to we want to learn more about those beginning days. Like, how did you even what was maybe home life or uh, or early school or even your first trajectory? How did it all start for you? <laughs> well, I grew up in a middle-class uh, white family. But I, I say that because there were no Catholics in the neighborhood, no no Jewish people in the neighborhood. It was only Protestant in the neighborhood, a very kind of segregated kind of life in Connecticut and uh, very sheltered and kind of very naive. I uh, had a learning disability in school, so they had some complications with reading and uh, it was kind of a very sheltered life. And uh, if you looked at some of the decisions I've made over my lifetime, it's all been to kind of combat that. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'll give you little pieces of it as we went along and uh, and whatever. But I suppose uh, some of the most compelling stuff was, um, you know, every kid needs a ticket at some level. And it doesn't really matter so much what the ticket was. And the ticket for me was tennis in the very earliest years. I became pretty good at it at fifth and sixth grade and by 12 or 13, I was one of the best in, you know, in my age brackets and playing tennis. I started to build my identity around being a good athlete. And that was just a, a really good thing. So I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to build it around being a great academician at that time. <laughs> you know, that, that happened a little bit later. I felt a little better about myself, but uh, trying to be a good athlete and being a good athlete uh, helped me out a lot and uh, gave me some opportunities to become a little more independent, 16, 17, 18 years old. Gave me some opportunities to uh, meet different people, and uh, that was a really good uh, piece. Twenty-one years oh. I've known you, and I don't think I knew that you were such a tennis pro. So, well, you know, it was back back today. I played just good, uh, good, uh, good club tennis, so to speak. But uh, I taught for four years. I actually allowed me to become financially independent, so could uh, break away from my own family a little bit in terms of that. But uh, the compelling part about my own upbringing was. Um, it was very, very female dominated. My, my dad was relatively not present. He came out of some pretty rough background of, uh, that was very, very, very complicated background. A lot of alcoholism back in his family and kinds of things. And uh, my mother was dominant. I had an older sister who was dominant. I had a younger sister who was dominant. And uh, so um, a lot of that, uh, you know, kind of helped me frame my own life a little bit because uh, it was kind of interesting that 
the thing I most disliked about my father was uh, that he could emote and he could feel and he could share and he could cry kind of almost on an instant. And it took me till about my middle twenties to recognize that exactly what my father had is what I needed. <laughs> you follow me? Because I figured out how to work hard, you know, just progress, just, you know, become a type A personality and get good at what I did. But uh had a lot of insecurities that went along, but uh, this changed. It grew some. I um, I recognized pretty early on that I was brought up in the church, and I was brought up uh, going to church every Sunday, going to see my grandparents after that. You know, a little bit of George, like with your with your mm-hmm. folks, you know. And I grew up going to church and going to going to my grandfather's house for dinner at every every Sunday. And uh, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to go into the ordained ministry. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, how early on did you know that? I probably started to consider it in ninth grade, 10th grade, you know, that I, that I really thought I'd go in. I thought I'd go into the ministry and I knew I wanted to work. I knew I wanted to do some kind of social work, some kind of work with people. I know I wanted to work in the community and I knew I wanted to kind of spread and broaden by leaps and bounds the experience I had as a kid. I figured that out early on. So I did, I did volunteer work even early on in that in the inner city, Hartford and just trying to broaden my own leap. But the ministry was really the place where I grew up. Was that this like common for your family to think about ministry or or go beyond like the sheltered experience? Well, you know, Elizabeth, you know, I met Elizabeth in my senior year, excuse me, my sophomore year in college, and we got married in our junior year. So my going to the ministry was very much of a conversation we were having with each other. And I said, you know, we're going to live a life that, you know, we're not going to have a lot of nickels, but, you know, we're going to, it's going to be, you know, a lot of sacrifice and, you know, a long time. And she was totally for it because she grew up, a, she also grew up in the church and, uh, and did it. And she always wanted to be a teacher. So that was pretty profound. So we, we talked a lot about it. And, uh, but I did most of my growing up after we had met, which is an interesting thing to do. And so did, so did Elizabeth, because, you know, you, you know, the old line in psychology of you kind of marry someone at your own level of differentiation. I definitely did that. We were both kids when we got married, and, uh, but we grown together. We're having our 50th wedding anniversary in uh, wow. a couple of months. So kind of thing, but CPE in uh, as part of CPE is clinical pastoral education as part of my ministry to get ordained. And uh, that's where I started to first confront myself. And as you said, made a real leap. I started to like myself, recognize some of my history, integrate some of my own past, look at some of the good and the bad of my life. And, uh, that really was profound for me. I did all my intern work for two years, three years in, in Boston City Hospital. And there was nothing you didn't see in Boston City Hospital. So, yeah. and of course, as, as you did, George, you know, you met so many people along the way that were your teachers. You know, I had mentors, people that really mentored me, but I had so many teachers, just, you know, people that, uh, people that just met me in a moment and just confront me in certain ways that I would learn and grow. Oh, yeah, and, I've definitely and, had some of those. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, so that was great. So uh, one of the great leaps in my life was um, I decided pretty early on, probably 22, 23, that I wanted to do something. This is going to seem strange, the language, but I wanted to only do things that were intrinsically meaningful. Because for about a year and a half, I did some work in between all these to help pay for school that I hated every day going to work. Mm. So it's what you call extrinsic meaning because then you get paid and you could do something intrinsically meaningful. But I decided that I wanted my work forever to be intrinsically meaningful. And that has really formed my life because I've only, 
almost only done things that doing the actual doing them was the benefit. And if I got paid for it, that was nice and, and nice to have and nice to be able to raise a family and pay for educations and whatever. But I really made a very early decision to do things intrinsically meaningful. How did you make uh, that decision? Working. I mean, at, at 20 something, that's not necessarily normal for 20 something year olds to be thinking about intrinsic meaning and, and value and purpose yep. even. Yep. Yep. Well, I do think now that I've got maturity with my dad and gave up some of the anger that I recognized that he lived a lot of his life like that, hmm. where he was never very productive and he never really quite figured out how to really, in his own mind, be a success. He was quite a success if I think about it because he, he did those intrinsically meaningful things all the time. He ran, he, he, our family business at that time was a sporting goods store when I was growing up. It was a big sporting goods store. And he did things like start, I forget what that term was for, you know, started baseball leagues, you know, for elementary school kids, you know, in, in inner city Hartford. And all he had to do was go to the store and pick up 15 bats and, you know, 50 gloves. And, yeah. you know, so I watched him do this kind of thing, which at the time, when I was a child, I was more critical of that he wasn't earning more money or doing more, you know, kind of things like some of the neighbors were. But uh, I learned that that was really kind of the essence of uh, a pretty deep life. So, so I, that's something I've done. I've only done intrinsically meaningful things, uh, really, you know, right up to today, what I'm doing with you right now, or, you know, when somebody asks me to do something that if, it, if it's something that, you know, I'm not going to really enjoy doing at some level or find meaningful, I, so I did. So that was a huge leap in my life along those lines. And I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And two things, you know, I think about my own journey with my father. It was really after losing my father that I was able to fully grasp those other parts, right? Like, I, I think like there was some frustration that he didn't make as much money or didn't do as much. Yeah. Uh, but it is in his passing that I recognize how much he still instilled me. He instilled in me around entrepreneurship or hope exactly. or optimism that exactly. I value so much in my life. Exactly. Exactly. And, and when you talk about intrinsic meaning, like there definitely have been some times where I've made decisions or choices because of what the extrinsic value would be, what I'm going to get paid. But I've definitely felt more rewarded, happy at peace when it was more intrinsic, when it was more of like part of who I am or, or brought some meaning for me. So it's great that you've been able to kind of shape your life and career from that. It sounds like from a really early age, being able to do that. And you, you think of the teaching you're doing now, you know, the lots of teaching you're doing now and some of the courses for the audience that I once taught and you're teaching most of those courses and whatever. And I watch you teach and it's so, you look, it's tough and you have to do it 15 weeks to row. But when you're there in front of those students, there's no party that's thinking about anything else, but the joy of that, yeah. the mentoring of those kids and having them, having them come up. And uh, it's fun to watch you as a, as a, as a leader at that, in that field. So I think that, I think that's, that's great. So, so you if you, take, if you take the intrinsic meaning stuff and you take the, my growing into uh, just broadening my life from that very sheltered upbringing, and then you, and then you add Elizabeth to my life, you know, for very married very early. And we just had, you know, complicated times in the beginnings. We just didn't have the maturity to talk well, share well, say what we needed, whatever. And we had to kind of struggle for the first couple of years to figure out, you know, we didn't have any, didn't have much money and no one, you know, not, not, no one, no one backing us up, paying for school and whatever. And uh, 
But the growing together, us growing together, and us growing as a team, and has been another transforming, leaping experience for me because we didn't get married like you know, like my daughter, you know, gets married at thirty-two and already has a career and a life and most of her education done. We, um, my wife and I, were in school the entire upbringing of our two older sons. So, you know, when they were 15 and 16, somebody would say, who has an exam today? And any one of us could raise our hands because we were just <laughs> doing four graduate of us. Any, any four of us. So it created a wonderful kind of meaningful place. And, you know, Emily, my daughter came across thing, came out, you know, 15 years later. And, uh, and by that time, our life was a little bit different and also a great experience. But uh, between Elizabeth transforming my life and kind of growing together and being intimate with her, and figuring out how to kind of share a life and uh, the, the kids. Uh, I'll give you another transforming piece. A leap was, you know, I went from, um, I went from being a transactional father and somebody who was too busy to kind of um, spend a lot of time in the really early years with them because I was just so busy trying to survive to um, being a much better father over time, uh, spending time on the floor, spending time with them, playing with them, just, you know, I learned not to teach them, you know, and they transformed my life also because they were great with me. They would challenge me, but in really almost always in good ways and mostly to say, hey, dad, we can do this now. You know, we, we're, we're okay. We can, we have this handled. And when I listened to that and just got quiet, they did have it handled. And those elements were incredibly uh, transforming and, uh, and meaningful. So it's a, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that, that brings you up to when I went to the council, basically. And I'm definitely going to come back to the time of you going to the council. I want to go back a little bit as, you know, you've shared with me before, so I know some of this, but, you know, early on in school, having to navigate, you know, some of those challenges. I remember you talking about business, and I've learned that from other people. And I guess I'm wondering, like, how did you navigate those early challenges as a person, as a young boy to move forward and, and then to play tennis at such a high level. So like, mm -hmm. how did you do all of that? Uh, my first answer is I don't know. Uh, it helps when you have, there's a wonder of consistency in my upbringing of a mom who, who loved me very much, a father who loved me very much, couldn't quite demonstrate it in certain ways, but I knew I was very secure in that. I never had to worry about what I was going to eat or there was a roof over my head. We lived in neighborhoods at the time, and that was a huge piece of my life. I mean, we this idea that we, the way we raise our children in the end and our children, our, my grandchildren are being raised now, we simply had 15 friends in the four or five houses to my left and right and four or five houses across the street, and, and we would just play all the time and whatever. So that was a very foundational, uh, wonderful way of being to say just the strabismus is my eyes worked independently and that, and so I couldn't read well. I was not a fast reader. I did internalize that. If I'm not smart enough, I'm not. And of course I had an older sister who was brilliant and mother that was very smart and whatever, but they never, they did well with that. They never compared. They say, Steve, you can do it. You're going to be fine. My mother thought more of me than I thought of me, which was a, which was really again, a leap. If you follow me, because mm -hmm. If she thought less of me than I thought of me, <laughs> she yeah. would have had to go pretty low. But if she felt, she always felt more of me. So she gave me something to strive for in terms of that. She always had more, she had more confidence in me than I had in myself, which actually helped me move forward a lot. 
I did things that, you know, I was able to go for, I started hiking very early on and I was allowed to go hiking just with a couple of friends at the age of 14, 15 to, to the point of dad, my father would drop us off a week later, a hundred miles away. He'd say, be here if you can be here, you know, seven days from now. And that's what we do. Now, this is uh, just for everybody. This is before cell phones, before GPS tracking devices. They exactly. just go pick you up on a hundred miles down the road. Yeah, we'd go up on the long trail up in Vermont, or we'd go up to the White Mountains and and we'd camp. And so they gave me resources to create a lot of confidence in myself. You don't do that stuff without building confidence. So they didn't overprotect me, which was really, really a good thing that they did. So that was part of it. And other than that, I had to just kind of slowly recognize that uh, that I had abilities and they had smarts. And of course, it helped because when in seventh grade, I had an English teacher who said, what is the problem here? Do you follow me on that? Because I tested fine. I tested as a perfectly normal, smart, I mean, good person. What is the problem here? And he was the first one to really say, there's something going on here. And then I, then I spent a year in ophthalmology and all sorts of things. And then I had eye exercises to do, and I learned how to speed read. And then my life got a lot different. So it corrected. Yeah. But as you know, an early, an early complex, an early kind of insecurity was there for a long time, which, which actually compelled me to go to graduate schools mm-hmm. with an S and <laughs> prove that I was smart. You know, I, look, I know that life. Yeah, it, took me a long, it took me a long time to just be, to integrate it, to say, I'm okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm, it's a nice place because I'm there now. And I've been there, been there for the last numbers of years, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, probably, but it took a long time to get there. It was, it was a struggle. Those lines. And I if I didn't I- have supportive parents and loving parents and a loving my background. And another thing interesting you probably don't know about me is that I did have mentors really from like the fourth grade on outside people in my life. I could kind of list the sequence of them who uh, made a huge impact on my life. You know, and one of the things I give myself some credit for is I went out and found some of these mentors and some of these mentors found me, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I've, <laughs> how we got to where we are. It's like, I fully believe that some mentors, you have to go find them. And that, and you're doing the same thing now for some students. You're going to do the same thing for lots of people, including their children. But just as you have a mentor, they can see you differently than, than you're seeing, that you feel internally. That is just priceless stuff. You know, I think that's a really great point. Like, you know, what you said that your parents gave uh, you and mentors, being able to see you beyond the way you see yourself. Right. And to f- constantly interact with that, to constantly right. interact with someone that sees you differently, exactly. better, greater. And then you start to hold on to that and to believe that. I know that I've experienced that in my own life, being around people like yourself who yeah. saw me better, greater. And then you started to kind of to fill in those shoes, right? You start yeah. to like walk in those shoes that they've yeah. set for you. And it, it becomes this really great like prophecy for your life and where yeah. you can go. It's really great. And it was a role Elizabeth played too, my wife. I mean, played, you know, I've told you the story, but, you know, the, I get this call on a random Wednesday night to see if I wanted to become the CEO of the council for relationships, you know, where, where we all trained and big job and big this. And it was because some of the things that failed, and you know, in terms of leadership there and, and whatever. And I'm debating loud and clear of whether I'm smart enough, capable enough to do it. <laughs> my wife said it a few expletives and what are you talking about? <laughs> it's kind of, Slap me around a little bit and I said, well, of course you're going to take it. So, you know, and all of a sudden you take it and you know, you can do it. So I've had a lot of people to help me with some of that, 
some of the difficulties of those of those earlier times. But I look, I, every day I'm blessed because the difficulties I had are nothing compared to you know when I watch the news today or work at some of the places I do volunteer work. I mean, you know, but uh, but still in my own version of it, it was uh, you know complicated to try and overcome. And that's a, yeah. the other part that I'm curious about. You know, you mentioned you and Elizabeth, and now getting ready to celebrate 50 years together, uh, which is amazing. And, you know, congratulations on that. But it's not often, I mean, you know, that I hear people say that they get married or decided to get married in the, you know, while they were in college. I think like, like you didn't even finish college yet. And you're truth, thinking, she had finished by the time I got married. She was a year older. So uh, I married an older woman. So she's, uh, she was a year older and, uh, we did do an interesting thing right at that moment was we made a pact when we got married that we would trade graduate schools. Okay. And if you know that I would go first and she would go and I would go work and then she, I would go and she would go and We did that almost completely that way. It was a real agreement that we made that we honored for the next 15 years. Wow. So, so, and if, 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 if I had grown and she hadn't, or if she had grown and I hadn't, we never would have stayed married. And that's yeah, something I've heard you say before, and yeah. and to hear that it, the value of growing with your partner, right, in in the different ways, right, like yeah. like you said, you grow, you start off as kids, but then you yeah. matured together, yeah. at different ways that you partnered. Yeah. I think that's yeah. just so incredible because I can yeah. imagine for some folks that that just doesn't happen where they right. have the pact and they follow through with the pact and they grow yeah. and develop along the way. So you know you attribute it to hard work, but you know that you know the divorce rate for. People that get married at 19 and 20, you know, it's like 80, 90%. And yeah. the reason is not because they don't love each other. The reason is they just don't have the maturity to manage an intimacy or manage the a birth of a child or the, you know, the, the complicated parts of trying to form a life or, you know, that kind of thing. So or four I found people having be, exams at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was all good. You know, it was all, uh, it was all very good, you know, so. So you uh, yeah, we're, go ahead. So you get this opportunity as you're moving forward, right? It sounds like you're maturing yourself. You're figuring things out. You've worked through some of the internal things. You believe right. in yourself more. You have a great partner. Right. And this opportunity to run this organization comes. Yeah. How, what was that like for you? And how did that impact or shift your life going forward? Again, you can almost think back to moments of time. Like the, the first moment when I was asked to run it was, was I you know, knew I wanted to at some level, but didn't think I had capability. So this got me through that and said, yes, I'll say yes. Mm-hmm. When I was first there, B. Hollander, who, you know, I just mentioned beads because it's a funny story. She came up to me on the first day I was CEO. I don't know if I ever told you this, but first day I was CEO, she comes up and says, you know, we've had some difficulty with the leadership here at the council. And I said, yeah, I, I know we have and whatever. And she looks at me and says, uh, you know, you were part of the problem. <laughs> and I, I stepped back and I, I started to laugh and I said, well, give me your version of that. Well, how, how did you see I was part of the problem? And she explained that she thought that I could have stepped up much earlier without being any title, without having the, the, the uh, you know, the, any letters by my name, mm-hmm. you know, CEO or this kind of thing. I could have stepped up much earlier in some of the leadership. And she was dead right. I mean, she was exactly correct and it was helpful. But one of the great things about the job is I had a whole bunch of people that we could be direct with each other. They could be direct with me and I could be direct with them. And we always had good intent towards each other. And these are the people that, you know, taught you and there's, yeah. you know, a lot, some are still there. They're all retiring, but um, there was an enormous amount of kind of direct feedback we had of each other. We could process our lives. 
So I heard the good, the bad, and the ugly of my leadership. And, you know, and they heard good and bad and ugly from my, you know, my thinking about their role and different kinds of things. But it was all done in good intent, but it helped us all grow. It's interesting. Another, another, I'll give you one other quick story, just a momentous kind of moment in that. About three years into being CEO, things were really mind-setting and I went a completely different direction. So I had this wonderful feedback that helped me grow. And uh, when I did 360s and big evaluations in the organization, I always read them out loud and would say, boy, these are the things that everybody's telling me I need to grow. And, you know, I'd laugh and I'd say, I, that's exactly right on target because I was kind of trying to work on that growing edge. But I was at a board meeting two years into being, being the CEO. And uh, I was sharing about five or six things about the future of the council. You know, any nonprofit is hard to hold yeah. up and how to go. And, and you know, not huge. And we were in good shape, but I was sharing the anxieties. And the chairman of the board looked at me and I thought he was going to talk about my anxieties and what the board could do to help and all sorts of things. But he said, he looked at me and just said, How many people know that you're carrying these anxieties? And of course, the answer was no one. Yeah. Elizabeth didn't know. The people you know that are still at the council didn't know. And he said, so you're shouldering all this anxiety as an individual person. And I said, I thought that was my job to kind of be the face of the staff to the board and the mm-hmm. face of the board to the staff and to kind of not let anyone know that the anxiety is being carried. And he said, before the next board meeting, I need you to have an executive committee of at least five or six people that you will share every one of these anxieties with. And they'll share some of their anxieties about the organization. And instead of you just carrying all the anxiety of holding this up, you're going to have five or six people that are going to carry it with you as a team. And I did that. It actually turned out to be eight people. I could still name them. You know them all <laughs> if you follow me. And we became, I learned how to be a much better leader there. Yeah. And it really was transformative for me as a lead because I, I stopped carrying it all by myself. And then I could give the Kens and the Aprils and the Bs and the Geralds and the, the, the people that were really good friends of mine. And, and you know, I, you know, just the Priscilla's, you know, you know all these names and I could yeah. go and say these anxieties and they could calm me down or they could say, yes, this is a concern or how can we all help and how can we all contribute? And I stopped doing that kind of solo stuff where I was kind of, I needed to be the person. And after that, for the next 15, 16 years, I found the whole, the whole role to be easier. I was less anxious about it. I think I was much better at it. I got better at it as we went along. I really appreciate, you know, you highlighting that. And, you know, two things I was thinking about is that and you mentioned it, you know, I was just in a conversation yesterday with a client about 360s and how they happen. And it sounds like you were able to do that early on. But but you also had a, a group of people that there was trust there. And, you know, yeah. sometimes in lots of companies and, and organizations, they do 360s and there's not necessarily trust <laughs> amongst yeah. everybody or safety yeah. even. And I can imagine that it was probably easier to hear it, to accept it, and to work on it because there was such safety and trust amongst everybody. Did two or three things that, because in the beginning, there was not much trust in me as a leader. I did do two or three things with a little bit of help and wisdom that really, again, were transformative. One is I was always transparent about every nickel I made at the council, what my salary was, what it was, so that people didn't project that I was getting paid blank and you know, this and that. And that, that was a really helpful thing. The other thing I did, which I don't think you, you know, is there's at the time, the head of the council was appointing people to work with each other. I was if Michael, like Michael ran a, you know, large payoli office, 
the leadership of the council appointed who we had to work with. And I learned very early on that if I let the leaders of the organization be the leaders, run their, develop their own offices, hire their own people, I wanted some kind of little bit of oversight into that to keep some balance and diversity and some kind of larger CFR values kinds of things going. But they all built their own offices and built their own practices. And after that, we were all on a team. It it wasn't, you know, my pushing someone onto someone else Mm -hmm. kind of thing. They were hiring people they wanted to work with and the teams became, you know, pretty close, you know, pretty close. So those two decisions were, I think were one of the things that helped build some trust. Besides the fact I would always show my 360 and read it out loud. (laughs) You know, the the feedback you got was just so accurate, you know, about your own weaknesses. It was just so, it was just so right on target. There was no, like, I don't do that, you know, whatever. And and then I had, and I always had stuff to work on. But it it takes such a great deal of vulnerability too, to, to be able to, to share that in front of folks. But once again, safety and trust. And, you know, one of the things I've seen with lots of leaders and, and even like high achievers is that you can get to a place where, it just feels isolated and alone. And yeah. so when you talk about like uh, de- sharing the anxieties that you had, right? That the level of uh, yeah. of anxieties that you held on to, feeling like that was your role as a leader. I know there's plenty of leaders who feel that way, that you that's bet. what they're supposed to do and they don't share. And I think it ends up hurting them. They end up the getting way. burned out and isolated and exactly, you know, it's a big deal. I think it was great that you were able to do that. And I would imagine that's some of the information or support or advice that you've given to other leaders along the way. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you another story that was transformative. One of, the, one of the things, one of my very first, I was probably in the role for about two years. We had about 12 support staff. And uh, at the time, I think probably somewhere in that number. And I got some feedback from that I could figure out was from the support staff a little bit that we didn't know how much Steve cared about us. So that was like a that was like a, a spear going through me because all I was trying to do was make sure the council was afloat and they all had jobs and I the work they were doing was just outstanding and whatever. But I recognized that this is a, this was a really a developmental thing too. I knew how to work eighty hours a week and I knew how to be productive and I knew how to this, but they didn't care about any of that stuff. They all they saw me do was running around the council, you know, busy, yeah. always busy, and. uh Another really transformative thing I did very early on is I started just going to each one of their offices in the morning, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, an hour, excuse me, just a couple of minutes or something. And I was, I started to track their lives. And that was also, do you, do you know what I mean by track their lives? I knew, for instance, to ask you, you know, how's your daughter doing? And how's it going at Abby? How's it going at school? And how's this and that and kind of thing. I was tracking their lives. And of course, immediately they felt of worth. Yeah, you know, from me, that I wasn't, that I, it was totally in me that I was feeling that way towards them and very positive and so glad they were there. But because I didn't ever have the time to just track their lives a little bit. Uh, and that became one of the, one of the mantras for me in all parenting. You know, when I talked, spoke on that is, is, are you tracking your own child's lives? Because tracking is one of the way we know that people feel loved. Yeah. They, you know, that you're paying attention, too. right? That you're right. in right. tune with what's happening. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Your friendship and mine has been developed at some level because I track your life and you track mine. You yeah. know, we can ask questions of each other and where we are in terms of that. So I see these things, and I probably have 15 more of them that I could think about, but just I see these things as things that really took my life and just by two or three degrees each time moved it in a different direction in pretty powerful ways. Was there a moment that you felt 
it throughout your career that one move or the other was a significant move for you that moved it multiple degrees forward? I think I think the multiple degrees happened when I was I took over CFR because I had to recognize my ability at some level. I had to kind of transform a little bit. Birth of each child was transformative for me. But when I learned how to play with them, that was really transformative. In other words, I always was a good father and was safe and whatever, but but I hadn't learned how to play with them. I hadn't really learned how to just be with them. That was transformative. Just currently, I mean, my semi-retirement is somewhat transformative in that I am finding downtime to be valuable. That's probably the most transformative thing that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. I never would have thought it. Most people thought I would never retire or never step back at all, you know. But as I have done that and have free time, I'm finding that I'm, you know, able to feel more and just more in touch. I'm more connected to my surroundings. And goodness knows I wish I had more of that ability when I was 30, but I'm glad to have some of it now. That That's transformative for me. And that makes, I'm not, I'm know, not, sc- I'm not scared of getting old. I'm, right. I'm looking forward to my seventies and eighties and nineties. God willing, I mean, I've been able to live that long, you know? Wow. And you know, that, that makes sense. Like those moments uh, and how they can be transformative. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I remember, you know, my initial interaction with you as a professor, when I was learning to become a therapist in my master's program and seeing the things that you were doing, which then really was part of the encouragement for me to want to work at council. And at that point, my memory was that it seemed like you were doing a lot where that seemed really great. You know, you were doing great work as a therapist. You're also doing some things in media. You were also running the organization, family, all that. Public speaking. Yep. All that. And I'm wondering, when did that part really like your reach and influence start to increase where it went beyond the room or the office? where it took on public speaking or media, when did, how, or how did you realize that that was also something you wanted to do? So it's an interesting question. I have to think about it a little bit. The public speaking is interesting in and of itself because that was, that started very early in my life. You know, when it started as preaching and early in life, but in ninth grade, I won the high school uh, public speaking prize. So that sounds like a great story. And I'm not saying that kind of out of ego. I'm saying that because one of the things I learned very early on, my father had carried so much anxiety. He couldn't speak in front of anyone. He couldn't perform in front of anyone. He he couldn't, he had no kind of level of security. And somehow in me that translated as I do not want to be there. So I started putting myself in front of people, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade kind of thing. And that early decision to do that, to calm my anxiety in terms of public speaking, in terms of being in front of people, in terms of going on TV, all the things you've done and not being highly anxious about, you know, speaking in front of 500 people or something like that. That was a learned behavior that I did just by calming my anxiety down with repetition. I suppose one of the key moments is I figured out, and this happened a couple of times, kind of sad, but funny story. Probably three times in my career, I was going to speak to three or four hundred people, and I had the wrong topic. In other words, somebody's up there introducing me and saying, uh, "We're so glad Dr. Tree's here, and he's going to be speaking on, uh, you know, the intimacy, marital, intimacy, a couple intimacy, or speaking on raising children." And I thought, whatever topic it was, I had the other one in my mind. Right. But one of the great experiences of my life was doing that, recognizing that I already had enough in my head 
I had enough general knowledge, enough, enough experience of life, enough experience in all sorts of levels of life and uh, all the vol- volunteer work and different things we moved the council to do that I had a level of confidence that wasn't, it wasn't uh, dependent on, you know, what was in front of me or paper or whatever I could, I could speak to it in, in a certain level. And that was a huge, it gave me confidence to be in lots of different environments that, that eventually at, at council, you, you know, at council, you were, you were brought into lots of different environments. I was on, you know, the leaders of the nonprofits in Philadelphia and there were other organizations as I was part of that, uh, you know, really significant people in Philadelphia and significant clients that I had. It became easy for me just to see them as people and me as just as a person and open up and not, not feel like I have to prove any. So there was some point in there that I had done enough public speaking, which when I, you know, you first met me way back, I mean, I was probably speaking two or three times a week, you know, and on TV once a week and, you know, and all sorts of things. And uh, I realized that no matter what happened, I had some resources inside myself and that, that created a lot of security for me. And I, you know, I have those resources even more than I've ever had them before, you know, currently, except at my age, I sometimes I forget now, but I've been in front of people so long. I just simply say, I forgot, and, you know, don't come right. back to me. And it's, it's no big deal. People laugh and, and whatever. So there, that was a real transitional time in my life. What I, I know I had done enough work that I could just, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like watching, it's like watching one of the great athletes that just know the, they know that the shot's going in, you know, yeah. kind of thing, or, or that I can, I can hit the baseball or I can, you know, whatever. So there was a confidence that grew out of that, that, that had been pretty great. So I kind of did now can just kind of do what I enjoy and work with a lot of different types of people. And not care I think a lot that's really powerful. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's powerful because, you know, so many times I don't think people, even times I remember myself, not recognizing how much that we have already within us, right? right. And it is those right. moments that you prove it to yourself or you see it like, oh, I guess I did know more. Or I really could have talked like for another 20 minutes on that particular topic if Absolutely. given the opportunity. And there's a way that you know, I really like what you're saying, how it builds the security of like who you are and the value that you can provide to the world and to others. And right. I think that's just phenomenal that you had that point. Because yeah, I do remember you were easily talking and speaking publicly on TV two, three times, maybe four times a week. And it's interesting when I find myself in that situation where I could be on TV one or two times a week on the radio and even virtually speaking somewhere where that has just been like just a part of my life. And yeah, my kids joke with me and saying, daddy, you're famous. I'm like, no, I'm not. But right. <laughs> like, but how they see it and experience it is just so interesting, you know, through their eyes of now feeling really secure about something that I do just on a normal basis. And think of your own foundation. You've got a real foundation. You know what you're, you know what you're talking about. When people raise something that you don't know about, you can just say, I don't know about it. Or I'm, I'm, that's something I'll explore and whatever. There's a, there's a level of security that comes out of it that, you know, I'm still working. Goodness knows I can still hold insecurities at different points, but it's so much less than it used to be as a, as a younger person. So it's a, it's a great thing. And that, it, it, but it took a long time. It took a long time to kind of feel that, hey, whatever environment I'm in, I can probably speak to some of that dynamic and uh, not feel like I'm I'm trying to prove myself. Kind of thing. So a couple of things I'm curious about and just knowing you and, and then knowing our relationship. I'll start there. You know, when I graduated with my master's, I was particularly looking for mentors. And I fully believe that that time to go and seek and go after people that yeah. uh, can be yeah. of value 
and I thought as a young black man who's now a therapist that I should, you know, reach out to other black men to to be my guides. How do they navigate it? And it was hard for multiple sets of reasons to find people to connect with. Yeah. And you and I had this connection and what how from my perspective, you were always willing to make time. You were busy. <laughs> you were doing a lot. And now in my own like more adult life, I can see it even more of like being super busy and mm -hmm. you made time. And I, I'm curious of what and I know you not only did that for me, but you did that for others. But what allowed you to make time for someone that was different, was younger, was another race, all these other things. But you stopped your schedule so that you could help support someone like me in my career. What allowed you to do that? Well, I think one of the most important factors is I realized that so many people did that for me. It was like paying forward a little bit. I mean, they literally, I had people pick me out of, and my mother's included in this list, just pick me out of kind of a general kind of population, kind of general people, just people and said, you can do this. You can have this happen. You can make this happen. You know, in, in graduate school, again, kind of a funny story that the head of the, the head of the graduate school that I was in was talking about, you know, wanting to have a vote on who would be public speaking at the, at the, uh, at the uh, commencement address. And, and they said, you know, we, we want to have a vote and whatever. And he's talking about this for about 20 minutes. And he says, yeah, heck with it. I don't think we'll have a vote. And, I just want to thank Steve for volunteering to do that. And one of my first, I didn't volunteer to do that. <laughs> but you follow me on that? Right. I want to thank Steve for volunteering to do it. And we only wanted him to speak for about 20 minutes on this and that. And we're so great to do it. I want everybody to give Steve a round of applause and for, for volunteering to do this with, you know, the 200 people that were in the, in the group in my class, and, you know, and coming in seminary. And I didn't want to do that. But he literally, this is a person that saw me again more than this. So I've tried to do that for people. But the other half of it was you, George. I, I, I'm not saying that for, for, for any reason to say you asked. Yeah. You get me on that? I mean, I, want, I think about how many people, I think about the times when I was afraid to ask, but I did that in the council. I mean, one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I was seen as someone who could run the council was Martin Goldberg, who was running it. I sought him out to be a mentor. You follow me? I, and he would sit in his office and say, I wonder why more people don't come to me. And <laughs> I said, because you're scary. <laughs> right. And I knew he was scary. You know, and he became a good friend. But I asked, would you please, I need your help. You are smarter than I am. And you had the, I don't know where that, that's an interesting question where it came in your background. of stuff yeah. that said, okay, whether it be Steve or somebody else, this is a person that can can give me some good feedback and can give me some, you know, feedback. And, and you said, would you help me? And when, when somebody asks, it's easy. And this, and they, you, know, you know, they're motivated and whatever. So I think it's a combination of that was done for me. And a combination of you asked, because, you know, almost anybody who asks, you find the time for it because, you know, their efforts are, they're really going after it. So, you know, let's be a part of that and have them as you have grown beyond me, you know, in so many, so many ways and some of your national speaking and some of that stuff. But you asked, I mean, that's a, that's a full half of it. I didn't tell me to, you know, if you hadn't asked, I would I have supported you? Of course. Would, like any student and you would have been, you know, a thousand students I had. Or time, but you said, no, 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 you have some time. You have an hour. And absolutely have an hour. Yeah, it was turned into I hope you got a couple of people that are doing that with you because yeah, they're going to yeah. be lucky if they do. So, unfortunately, but I do recognize I would not have gotten there. And I mean mentors. I mean, starting at three years old, four years old, I could go to my next door neighbor, Max Smith, and he loved to put together radios back at the time. And there were kits for radios. And 
there was like, you have to, you put all the pieces out on the table and you find piece number three and it goes and connects with piece number three on the radio. Do you follow me that? And at three years old, I could find piece number three that I, or four years old, I knew four or five, but he was mentoring me already to work together with him. Uh, and when I, I wrote on this once, because I had mentors really from four years on, four years old, outside of my family. Yeah. But I think that's great. And, you know, I do appreciate that. And that, you know, I, I give credit to some of the teachers in my life that had just influenced me along the way. And I think, you know, probably shortly before that time, it was uh, Dr. Phyllis Swint, who I remember pulling me aside and saying, I don't ask for help. And I think that was because I was used to in my family context. Yeah. My parents couldn't do so much. They got I got to a certain age. They couldn't like even check my homework. They exactly. loved me. They cared for me. But it was on exactly. my own. I had that mindset. But exactly. it wasn't until I had that someone who was willing to call me on it. And then I think from that point on, I was like, all right, I'm going to ask for help <laughs> from whoever and I was so appreciative that one hour turned into hours, you know, throughout a course of a year to multiple years to now 20 plus years. The other thing I want to highlight before we wrap up is that you do a lot of work helping leaders, helping leaders in families and family businesses. And, you know, you talk about like seminary and being CEO and the work that you've done. Uh, how did that like start to like pull on you as one of your kind of core expertise to help family businesses? Well, like most things, I was dragged into doing it. <laughs> kind of thinking think about my role as kind of myopic. But the, the actual story is I had two Wharton professors who uh, came to me and said, Steve, we're, we're consulting these large family businesses and uh, family philanthropies, and we're just missing something. And I said, what do you mean? What are you missing? And he said, well, we just built somebody a couple hundred thousand dollars for a plan for the company and all the demographics for how they were going to grow the company and, and, you know, change roles of people and whatever. And we watched two brothers just, you know, rip them up. And they said, we want you to come and speak to a business seminar that we went there. And we want you to speak on psychological health and relational health. And I said, well, what does that have to do with business? I mean, what, I, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like, a duck. no one's going to want to do this. And so, you know, I went down with these guys and they put me in front and said, we got one class that's going to be a little bit unique in terms of this. And I just started talking about relational health and what, how do you manage conflict and how do you differentiate and how do you not end up, get rid of your own reactivity or, you know, all the kinds of things you and I have talked about forever. And I found that it was enormous appeal, that it was so much a part of that so many family businesses and family philanthropies weren't making it, not because it was a lousy business or a lousy vision for the company or a lousy you know, marketing plan or whatever or lousy investments it was because brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers couldn't get along wow. and family branches couldn't get along. And so I started with them and I'm still working with, you know, off wow. and on and whatever, and just, uh, just slowly met people of companies of all sizes, billion dollar companies and, you know, one truck and, you know, one well drinking, you know, truck and, you know, some wonderful small families. And yeah. I've had enormous experience, uh, wonderful experience meeting some of these people and the challenges they have. But the challenges are always the same from my end, vantage point is how do you lead? How do you feel good about yourself? How do you break your own reactivity? How do you get out of the defenses? How do you have good communication? How can you do difference with people and have it be a good communication? And uh, I found it to be a whole challenging career, which I've had many failures and many wonderful, wonderful successes. And uh, 
So that was how I got into it. I got in drag because I had no notion that the relational educations that we've got gotten were going to really apply to business and philanthropies. And of course, they apply a lot. One of the reasons I love the work and the field is that it it can apply in so many different places. Exactly. Four kind of last questions that I ask everyone. Uh, One is, what are you doing now? What are you working on now and where you are in life? So I am working on practicing more downtime, just being emotionally available to the people around me, being less frenetic. You know, I started that very early, but it's still an ongoing, you know, pattern for me to do that because I want to go into my 80s and 90s in peace and stuff like that. So I'm doing more. I'm just doing more reading and and walking and hiking and just time with Elizabeth and time with my grandchildren and uh, still always doing some meaningful work a couple days a week with some large businesses and large family philanthropies, but uh, slowly moving down, moving into my, you know, early seventies and eighties, trying to just work on being my time to build something and, or to, to work 80 hour weeks is gone. So I want to kind of practice being older. It's what I'm literally practicing. <laughs> I like practice being older. As you've kind of, you know, slowed down some of your work, this might be applied differently. But I always like to ask if there's somebody that you could work with, and maybe now is more if it's someone you could have a conversation with, sit down and have dinner with anybody, who would that be? Oh, I think it would be a, I guess I'd like to sit down with Carl Jung and Barack Obama. Why those Carl, two? Jung, Carl Jung, because I think he had some of those incredible insights in the human behavior and uh, done so much of his reading and whatever. And Barack Obama, because I think he was one of the most differentiated leaders we've ever had. Mm. You know, he lost it occasionally, kind of lost himself. But boy, I think he was one of the most differentiated people that we've had in a very long time in the leadership role. So I, those would be the two. Wow. Yeah, know? I could see that would be a really great and <laughs> interesting uh, <laughs> conversation. Exactly. The last two questions deal with mental wellness. And I'm wondering for you and all the work that you've done and for yourself and others, what does mental wellness mean for you? It means you can look at your, the good and the bad and the ugly. You can, you can look at your strengths and weaknesses and like both. You know, allow yourself just to be a human being. It means, as Viktor Frankl said, you know, between the stimulus and response, you have choices to not just end up reacting to the world. But to really, when you have some negative stimulus coming towards you, you have more options, you have choices of how to respond. Uh, and as I get more mature, I have more choices than just simply getting reactive or, you know, somebody hits me, I hit, I don't hit them back. If you follow, I have more choices of how to respond. So it's a, it's a part of that. But most of it is just a little bit of just self-care, self-love, self-acceptance. Yeah. Uh, not in a, in a humble way, just to recognize that, you know, I've done okay, and I feel good about it, and I've got, I hope I have some life to go in that, but uh, you always want to improve, but you, but I'm, there's a level of acceptance now that I didn't have as a kid, you know, when I was hungry and stupid. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and the last kind of maiden question I, I like to ask is, what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday or any time in the past. Uh, I would have learned to do more balance of life early on. I would have learned it earlier. I learned it early enough. You know, it wasn't like I had to wait till I was 70 to figure it out. I would have learned it a lot earlier, but 
I was trying to compensate for so many insecurities early on that probably I had to work those hours and be motivated and go after it at some level at that point. But I think I would have learned balance of life earlier on. And I thank goodness I have Elizabeth and different people that forced me to learn balance of life. I mean, there's decisions they made that said, no, you will be taking care of the kids blank at this time and this kind of that forced me to calm it down. And I thank God for all of that. But uh, I think I, I could have internally found more balance of life early on. Yeah. I would have recognized how unimportant some of the drivenness I had was, you know, not completely. I'm glad I was driven, mm-hmm. but uh, some of it, you know, I could have so balanced earlier on in a little better way, you know? Yeah. You know, you know, Steve, I, I really appreciate, you know, your time and your willingness to be here, all that you've shared. I feel like I've learned lots of new things. <laughs> Even when I think I know a lot, I, I continue to learn more and I appreciate. And I think that you just, you offered a, a lot of really great thoughts and ideas and, and wisdom, I think is helpful for me and I think will be helpful for others. So I really appreciate it. And, well, I'm looking uh, you know, to a lot. I'm looking for a lot more years of the, the mentoring we do for each other. So uh, we're, uh, I look forward to a lot of years going ahead, George. So, so I do too. And I appreciate, you know, the paying it forward as you've done, you know, what was done for you and you've done for me and I've been able to do for others. It is definitely something that I value. And even as you talked about, like being aware of those insecurities that sometimes trip us up. But if we just settle in, there's ways that we could, you know, see the best exactly. in ourselves. And so so blessings. I, thank you. And I was going to say, the last thing I would say is, that, is there anything you want to say before we kind of end today in our time? No, it's just what a pleasure it's been to to know you, and uh, I look forward. As I said, uh, hopefully, hopefully, I've got lots of years left. I know you got lots of years left. But <laughs> I hope in my in my early seventies, I got lots of years left. But you never know. So I'll well, take advantage of it as I go along. I, and I look forward to sharing, all, you know, our families together and supporting and connecting with each other. So thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome, George. What what a, what a pleasure. Take care. See you. Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the Leapcast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.